Okay, so class two, book study two, Dhan Sutra. So we are on, uh, we finishing chapter four, going into chapter five. I wanted to uh, overlap a little bit uh, the, the main point of, of chapter four, uh, also the most important aspect of our practice. So it says that in the practice of charity, Buddhists distinguish three kinds of gifts, material, emotional, and spiritual. Material gifts include such things as food, clothes, and medicine. Emotional gifts include comfort and protection. And spiritual gifts include guidance and instruction. In terms of their benefits, material gifts put an end to greed. Emotional gifts put an end to anger. And spiritual gifts put an end to delusion. It was the combination of all three in the Buddha's daily life that prompted Subhuti's question and resulted in these further instructions on the nature of the practice that results in Buddhahood. Very important. The most important point. The practice of giving. A lifelong uh, practice of giving. Chiang Wei Nung says, all the Buddha's teaching can be summarized by the word renunciation. By renunciation, but renunciation is another word for charity. By renouncing attachment to self, we become arhats. By renouncing attachment to dharmas, we become bodhisattvas. By renouncing renunciation itself, we become buddhas. Thus, charity is the ultimate practice. And then Chiang uh, Wen again says, the Buddha says we should not be attached to the six senses. He does not tell us to eliminate the six senses. Cultivation takes place in the world. It does not deny the world. We have to depend on the world to practice. Charity and merit show us where to begin our practice. In other words, our lives exactly as it is, our life exactly as it is, is showing us how to practice or where to begin. Which means this state of being, this state of mind, this, whatever, whether we think it's great or whether we think it's not so great, whether we think we are free or stuck, that's the place of practice. There is no other place. There is no later practice. Or there is no practice in another form or another state of being, another state of mind, or uh, me 2.0. There is no me 2.0. That's it. So, which ties it all together, right? We, we did Fasatsu last week. And, and, and the, the practice is asking us from day one to work with the Dharma to the best of our ability, not later, right now. And that's, that's what that means. So then, um, the Buddha is talking, and I keep going uh, with uh, the dialogue between Subhuti and the Buddha. And the Buddha is saying, and why Subhuti, the body of merit, he talks about merit, the body of merit of those bodhisattvas who give a gift without being attached is not easy to measure. What do you think, Subhuti? Is the space to the east easy to measure? Subhuti so replied, no, it's not, Bhagavan. And the Buddha said, likewise, is the space to the south? to the west, to the north, in between, above, below, or in any other, ten, in the ten directions. Easy to measure. And then, well, let me ask, just for a couple of minutes, what is this? Why is he equating 
space or measuring space to giving. What's the connection? To the giving he's talking about, not contractual giving as we engage in. Non-contractual giving is equated to measuring space. Why? Because space has no form. Anything else? The merit that's involved in that kind of giving is that you can't measure how much merit. Okay, so merit. Merit that results from such a giving. What about the giving itself? What about giving that is that you cannot measure? What does it mean to not measure? It's just let's simplify it. It means you just give. It means there's nothing else going on. There are no calculations, right? There are no calculations. There are no uh, judgments. There are no um, no parameters. No parameters, right? There, there's just wide space of giving. There's nothing else going on. And that's freedom. Right? When we start to measure our giving, I'm giving but what am I getting back? Or I will give that much because I don't have that much, for example, right? What I have is limited, so I will give some. And I will hold on to some. That's already saying, well, the space to the east is from here to here. Because my giving is from here to here. Or I'll give because it means I'm a good person. Yeah, because I'm going to get something out. Right. That's the contractual kind of giving, right? I want something out of that giving. But the giving he's talking about is immeasurable. As the space to the east, the north, south. Does that work? Yeah. Yeah, also understanding Because like, even if sometimes we don't measure what we give, still pointing that we have no idea how far it can reach. That is very true. Mm -hmm. We don't know, right, actually that's true for all actions. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Any action, we don't know the ripple effect that is caused by that, and we don't know how far it's going to go. That's why we have to watch what we say, how we act, how we move, how we think, because it, because it does have Ramifications. Isn't it that giving? Because if I think I give in a thought, a word, an action. It is. It's all forms of giving. It's all. Your existence is it's a form a giving. of giving. Yeah. I'm not sure if this might be a little bit too off topic here, but you know, rightfully so, we talk a lot about giving, but I, I don't see too much about receiving just on the grounds of what does it mean to receive this type of giving? And I know personally, sometimes, and I think it seems like a lot of us talk about it, of how are we unable to extend the same kind of giving and charitable kindness to ourselves that we kind of express freely and freely to others in abstract. And so, so I guess what I'm trying to say... You're asking about... Um, on the side of receiving, what does it mean? Yeah, what, it mean? what does it look like, right. you know, uh, to, to receive these types of gifts as freely as it means to give them? Um, well, we quantify giving, we quantify receiving. Yeah. 
when we look at giving in a quantifiable way, we are also going to look at receiving in a quantifiable way, mm -hmm. right? So that's why, this is why Ben Yama said, you know, and, and others too, he talks about a triple emptiness, right? There's no giver, no give, no receiver. Mm -hmm. When there's no giver, gives receiver, what's on the other side? There is no other side. You all, mm -hmm. actually you are, you are the giver, the gift and the receiver. So it doesn't really matter, you know, uh, the action is free. Mm -hmm. But the reason why we may not want to receive gifts can be the reason why we, it is the reason why we don't want to give gifts, or we quantify the giving. Mm -hmm. It's the same thing, right? It's the same disease. Yeah, we're just contributing Because we put limits. To it. Because we quantify ourselves, right? Oh, what I'm getting out of it. You know, I don't want to receive this because then I'll be in debt to this person, right? And then later I'm going to have to give something back. Yeah. It's the same thing. Yeah. It's that calculated mind of ours, right, that starts to put measurements. Mm. So to not measure, it's not easy. No. It's definitely breaking out of habits of, even when it is given freely, of it's painful. kind of inability to perceive of that, like, you know, immediately you're going, what's the catch? <laughs> right, right. Um, like, is this going to be called in at a later date? Kind of yeah. thing, you know. Exactly. <laughs> so then, the, the, so and this is the the freedom of giving without measuring it. Then it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Yes, merits are going to be accumulated as a result of that. But even that doesn't matter. You give that too. Mm -hmm. In fact, they talk about giving the merits that we accumulate as a result of our own actions. We don't want to hold on to that either. Even if, but even if I measure what I give, yeah. I still don't know how immeasurable it can be. Because if I give you $5, because I only have 10 and I don't want to lose it all, right? Right. But I have no idea what you can do with $5. And you may be able to save your life, I don't know. Yeah. So you if really know. measuring doesn't matter, or it doesn't what, that, what would mean? Like when you measure, because even if you measure giving, it's not. It's different skills and stuff. Even if we think we, even if we think we measure and giving, right? Like I, I, oh, I, if I give him, I'm gonna give him this. Yeah. But so I don't own that much, or something like that. So you're saying that all giving is immeasurable. Regardless yeah, regardless of what we might think about. So it. when we get in the way of thinking that. I can measure it, like I'm not going to give you this, I'm going to just give you that. Yeah. But still unmeasurable because I have no Something perception of how you can do with a gift, you know? You don't know what the person yeah, can do like, with a gift. Yeah. So I guess it's just getting our mind getting in the way of measuring something, but still not. Maybe I'm Well, there is, there is conventional measuring, there is conventional yeah, way, right? Yeah. I mean, yes, absolutely. But this is not, it's not saying, you know, uh, don't count. Yeah. <laughs> it's not saying, you know, don't look at things in relation to other things. It's not saying that at all. It's just saying don't be a bastard. Yeah. It's saying don't put uh, any weight or baggage on your giving. That's all. But, yeah, keep your eyes open. Yeah. <laughs> right? I mean, you remember, it was last week you know, that, that I quoted, um, it was about being a bodhisattva, right? So you, you are not, this is what is required of us, right? It's, it's a kind of giving 
that is not attached to anything. Your being is the giving itself and that's it. It's already happening. Right? So you become a being to become based on the moment. So your eyes are open. And the other thing that he said last week, from what I quoted, is that uh, we are the, the, the actual gift, the most important gift, is to give somebody the understanding that they are awakened or they have the potential to awaken. So something, sometimes it will be actually, it may appear as withholding. It may appear as withholding, but it's for the purpose of giving. So if you say no to somebody, it, it may be to help that person awaken. Not because you're stingy. Otherwise it becomes what we call idiot compassion. I'm just going to be kind to everybody just because. Because it says so. But it actually doesn't say so. Because there is a pie, right? There is, what is, you know, it is about awakening. It's like it's like when you teach somebody, yeah. um, right? You just you don't want to you don't want to um, do everything for them, right? Yeah. You want you want them to be able to do it for themselves. Um, maybe I will help. You know, uh, Shufa says a person who is attached to object is like a bird that walks on the sand, while a person is, who is not attached to objects is like a bird that flies through the sky. The one leaves tracks while the other leaves not. Actually, more than that, one lives the way we're supposed to live, and the other one is a bird that is not using its wings. It's kind of sad, right? Yeah. There is one bird, the kiwi bird. It doesn't fly, it just walks. I think it's because it, it lost it because it had no predators. Is that true? In yeah, in New Zealand, they don't fly. So, still birds, but they don't use the wings. So, uh, the says, every action of the body, mouth, and mind is like a seed that sooner or later bears the fruit appropriate to it, right? As we said about, you know, consequences. Good actions result in blessings, bad actions result in uh, tribulations. Just as a melon seed gives birth to a melon and not to an apple. So does an action free of limitation gives birth to a fruit free of limitation. No gift is greater than liberation. Hence, no merit is greater. Thus, those who practice this teaching without being attached to it are said to be like a fish that enters the sea. Or like a fish that realizes that it's always been in the sea and now it actually functions the way it needs to function. Not on the camera, remember? Mm-hmm. As uh, Hafiz said. And then uh, again, people, without sufficient merit, liberation is not possible. There's no such thing as spontaneous Buddhahood. It is our merit that results in good birth, in a, in a good family, in a good place, during a good time under the guidance of a good teacher. However, if merit can be compared to a seed and liberation to its fruit, the only seed capable of producing a fruit that has no limit is a seed that has no limit. Hence, as this sutra progresses, the Buddha expands our understanding of the merit that accrues to those who cultivate this teaching. 
until it, it exceeds all possible expectations, conceptions, sorry, um, including those of space and time. Thus, this body of merit is not equivalent to good karma. It is selfless and hence transforms the constraint of karma into the path of Buddhahood. Is that, is this understanding? What is that? Yeah? No? So yeah. it doesn't uh, eliminate karma, is what he's saying? It enables you to work with karma in a different way. But it doesn't eliminate it. it it's still going to be there. It, right. That you'll be able. So with skillful means, um, I mean, one piece of this seems to be uh, that this sutra over and over again says there is no self, there is no self, there is no self. And anytime you say, ah, you're getting into trouble. Um, and skillful means seems to be a way of doing things without an eye being there. That skillful means is just what should be done in that situation. Yes, also skillful means are in a way they can help us, like a flashlight that is showing us the, the, the tendency of the hand to grasp. What we grasp doesn't matter, right? The tendency of the hand is to close. So then through skillful means we realize, right, or we help somebody else realize, you are grasping, let go. So what he's telling, you know, what he's telling us, what he's telling Subhuti is, let go, let go, let go, let go, let go, let go, let go. You're holding on. You may be holding on to nothing. It doesn't matter. Holding on to something, holding on to you're holding on. Right, but in using skillful means, there's not a self involved in the use of <coughs> skillful means. And so then applying skillful means to charity <coughs> would be being able to act without there being a self. Yes. Right, because you'd just be doing what the situation calls for, what should be done in the situation. And you're actualizing your potential. It's but not as a self. No, as... Not, and that, that's always... You're actualizing an innate potential. What? Yours, mine. Right, that's not right. We, we use it, you know, in terms of language, right? You're actualizing an inherent potential. Which, we which isn't your potential in that self-sense, it's... Well, do you remember, you know, uh, so, okay, uh, I'm it and it is not myself. Do you remember that, Dongshan? Fortunately, I'm it and it is not myself. So, it's not denying the body, right? It's not denying that this is the form through which itness manifests. Otherwise, if you deny that, you deny the expression of fitness. Right? How do we use that form? But it's an it, not an I. Yes. Well, I'm it and it is not myself. No. So, right. It's not denying the small I. Okay. It's saying one thing. You can look at it from here, from here, or from here, from any angle, but it's saying the same thing. We separate it. <laughs> It's this and it's that. It's this that is expressing itself through that. Even that is saying too much, actually. Because it's just that. Then I'm not going to ask, well, what is it that is expressing itself through me? And then the second quote, well, who is me? And then we go, okay, well, right back to the mouth. Right? So watch out. Um, Edward Conzi, Dr. Edward Conzi says, Merit is the indispensable condition for all further spiritual progress. Nevertheless, to aim at merit is to diminish it. And why? 
because when giving, etc., is accompanied by wrong metaphysical views that assume the reality of gift, giver or in the world, it produces only limited results. <clears throat> but if it aims at emptiness alone, then the reward becomes truly infinite. The selfless Bodhisattva merit, as uh, Kamala Shiva says, is here compared to space or the sky because it is all pervading, vast, and inexhaustible. We understand the words, right? The words are not complicated. It's just that we hit a wall when we try to practice it. We hit ourselves, actually. You know, we bump against ourselves when we try to practice it. Yeah, but what am I getting out of it? What does it mean for me? What does it mean for you? Right? And this is what this is what the practice is. But we do have to hear it again and again and again. So just to finish this chapter, I quote from Thich Nhat Hanh, who says, the happiness that results from practicing generosity without relying on signs is boundless. We often say that the fruit of practice are space and liberation. Fruit of practice, space and liberation. If we are washing, it gives an example, if we are washing dishes and thinking of others who are enjoying themselves doing nothing, we cannot enjoy washing dishes. We may have a few clean dishes afterwards, but our happiness is smaller than one teaspoon. If, however, we wash the dishes with a serene mind, our happiness will be boundless. This is already liberation. The, the words of the sutra are very much related to our, very, to our daily life. So, washing the dishes is a gift, is giving. Even alone, it can be offered to the world without calculating, without comparing, without before and after. Without, oh my God, I'm not doing it, it's too much, it's too little, how come he or she is not doing it or is asleep? Or whatever. It's just, it's free being, it's free doing. Right? Simple? Okay. Very. Good. So chapter 5. What do you think, Suluti? Can the Tathagata be seen by means of the possessions of attributes? Uh, Tignatan translated that as bodily sign appearances, right? And Suluti replied, no, indeed, Bhagavan, the Tathagata cannot be seen by means of the possession of attributes. And why not? Bhagavan, what the Tathagata says is the is the possession of attributes, is no possession of attributes. So what we, what he's saying, what Subhuti is saying, is that what you say is a possession of attributes, is not, is possession of no attributes. What you're saying is nothing, so there's nothing there, right? And this is very helpful to understand again and again where Subhuti is coming from, his state of mind. What is he stuck with? Right? No? Yes? Yeah. Okay, good. Having, uh, this having been said, the Buddha told the Venerable Subhuti, since the possession of attributes is an illusion, Subhuti, and no possession of attributes is no illusion, by means of attributes that are no attributes, the Tagata can indeed be seen. <coughs> so, Trying to unpack it, uh, Bill Porter says, in the previous two chapters, 
The Buddha told Subhuti that in order to liberate others, Bodhisattva, Bodhisattvas must do without being attached to perceptions of a self and being all liberation. And that as a result of such that as a result of such practice, Bodhisattvas produce and obtain a body of merit that has no conceivable limits. In this chapter, the Buddha tells us that what he means by a body that has no limit and what our attitude towards such a body should be. For the Buddha is concerned that Bodhisattvas will become attached to the immeasurable body they acquire as a result of their practice. So just for a couple of minutes, what does that mean? What does it mean that he is concerned that the Bodhisattva will become attached to the immeasurable body that is acquired as a result of practice? Yeah. Well, this, this is um, uh, picking up on the previous chapter, right? Bodhisattva, even though there's, goes on to say there's no dharma of Bodhisattva. Um, bodhisattva is the ultimate giving, right? Following the path of the Bodhisattva is the ultimate giving, it's the ultimate charity. Um, so, um, what I think it's saying here is that the same way that we get attached to giving and attached to the merits that come from giving, Bodhisattva, which is the ultimate form of giving, can be attached in the same way that, you know, regular people are. And that's the problem, because this is like giving on a, you know, giving on steroids, right? Right. So we can become attached to that and then use uh, medicine as poison. Exactly. Yeah. I also took it as kind of like a, someone looking for a checklist of sorts of like I have to fulfill these appearances and these behaviors in order to be considered as such. I think we always see it sometimes that I hesitate to use the fake it till you make it kind of saying, but it's the I have to dress a certain way, play the part. I think there was one um, talk you gave at Association, I think, about talking about using Zen as like a new jacket or something like that and that people are too often to like, okay, now I'm a Zen practitioner right. and this is the character I'm playing. Yeah, play the role. Yeah. <coughs> right. Also, just as an aside, this sent me down a very strange wormhole of scholarship on the anatomy of the Buddha and all the different ways they've described it in different works. It's a, I don't know, it's fascinating to me the way that, like, I think some people have actually tried to draw it based on everything, you know, because it was like, like long face, long ears, retractable penis, like all these things. Yeah, the 32 marks, which is yeah. actually the 32 chapter. Some, some people say it's the 32 chapters of the sutra. Yeah. Not that each one, you know, is equated to one of the attributes, but yeah. But it's just interesting. Yeah. Isn't it describing kind of like Zen sickness? Like being stuck yeah. at the top of the pole? Yeah. Right? Yeah, so yeah, holding on is holding on. Right, holding on is holding on. So then, um, again, Bill says, every object of our senses is known to us by a set of attributes. In fact, every object of our senses is nothing more than a set of attributes which we arbitrarily combine, usually for selfish reasons, and whose own individual existence we accept unquestioned. We talk about it often, right? Uh, thus, this body of ours is known to us by the attributes of our senses weave around that seed of ignorance we call the self. That grain of sand that becomes the pearl we refuse to relinquish. This is very well put. The grain of sand that becomes the pearl we refuse to relinquish. 
we create a cell out of that. Right? And we regard this body of ours not only as having an independent physical existence, but also as having an independent psychic and spiritual existence as well. Buddhas too have physical and spiritual bodies. And the Buddha asked Subhuti if the Tathagata can be identified by such a body or by the attributes that comprise such a body. This question is very important. It appears again three more times in the Sutra. Can the Buddha be seen by physical attributes? How do we see a Buddha? How do you see a Buddha? Yes. I think this is almost kind of like Vivala uh, Kirti, where we have an image of what we think it should look like, and unless you meet that, we say that you can't be. But if you actually connect with a, a person or anything else at, on that deeper level, you can see their Buddha. So, Buddhas do not know that they are Buddhas. If you see a Buddha, kill the Buddha. Right? Why, why all this? <laughs> why are we saying all this? Uh, I guess if you see the Buddha, then you're holding on to that. You're holding on to um, Buddha. <coughs> if you see a Buddha, you also see a non-Buddha. Right? There is the, the gap. Right? There is the suffering. So, how can Buddha be seen? Let's, uh, let's keep going and see if he tells us. <laughs> How can the Buddha be named? Name, seen, yeah. Right. Because naming is a thing that goes. Yeah. I forget which which quran was in the in the commentary. It says you know, saying the in the word the, the word Buddha, you know, is is you gotta just wash your mouth. You know, it says Buddha. You gotta wash your mouth. I don't know, like fifteen times or whatever. You know, stop saying. It. Who said that? No, I forget oh. which one of these oh, the commentaries, I think. So there could be a special Buddha soap <laughs> which you can become attached to. Because what's wrong with regular soap? Yes. In the awakening of faith, as Bhagavad says, what is perceived by bodhisattvas from their first aspiration to the end of the bodhisattva path is the Sambhogakaya or the real body. And I'm going to talk about that in a few minutes. Uh, this body has countless forms. Its forms have countless attributes. Its attributes have countless excellent qualities. And the place where it appears has countless adornments. It appears without bounds, inexhaustible and indivisible. And it responds. It is never lost or destroyed. Such merits as these all result from the influence of the spotless practice of the perfections, the six parameters. <clears throat> Same thing Yi says, Subhuti realizes that the Dharma body has no attributes, but he does not yet understand that the Dharma body is not separate from the attributes. So how do we see that? It's actually very important, right? So really realizing that the normal body has no attributes, but he does not yet understand that the normal body is not separated from attributes. 
is going beyond affirmation and negation. Right? So, Subhuti is seeing all that from the side of negation. And we may be stuck in affirmation. But this is going beyond affirmation and negation. And actually, this is what the Sutra is about. Well, that's, that's Subhuti's uh, journey during this whole, you know, Sutra, right? He's going from, you know, the Arhat to Bodhisattva. Right? He's going from, you know, uh, emptiness to coming back to the world to, you know, from no attributes to attributes to no attributes to attributes. Right. So, mountains are mountains, rivers are rivers. Right. Then, mountains are no longer mountains, rivers are no longer rivers, right? And then mountains are mountains, rivers are rivers. Because there's no need to let, let go of well, Letting go is, if you let go of that, it means you're attached to it. If you have to let go, it means you're attached to that. Right. How do you function with that without being attached to it is the question. Because if I have to ignore it or deny it, it means I am attached to it. Or if you ignore it, it's no longer useful. You can't use it. Right? Yes, I can't use it. A microphone is a microphone. Whether you <laughs> believe in it, in it or not, or whether you, you think it's empty or, or not, it's at some point it's still a microphone. Yeah, but you, you, become, you can become very possessive of that particular form. Right. Right? Yeah. It's mine. Right? Or whatever. You know? And then it's not yours. And then there is already the, uh, the energy of possessiveness manifesting. Or like, to be heard, I need a microphone. Yeah. So letting go of it doesn't mean it goes away. It's still there. And so rather, this we talk about... Yes, so what does it mean to... What, renunciation, what does it mean to renounce? It's to understand it for what it is. But it doesn't mean it disappears. It's still there, but how we interact with it is now different. I, I think... You and I talked about this in regards to the, the scene from uh, the beautiful mind, mm -hmm. where it was, you know, in the course of his this uh, yeah. multiple personality disorder, he goes from being completely governed and by that to you know, questioning his reality to the end where they're there, the characters he sees them, but they're no longer interacting with him and governing his reality, and he has to you know, check in on them still, but they're there all the same, but he understands them for what they are now, and he's renounced. Right, so he doesn't, he doesn't reject them, he just yeah. changes the way he interacts. Mm -hmm. Yes, he doesn't push away. Yeah. It's like a renunciation of attachment. Yes. Yeah. You, the, the, you actually, like, you work with the, the tendency to grasp. Oh, actually, deeper than that, you realize that there's no need to grasp. You realize that grasping is a result of an error. It's just a mistake. When you realize it's a mistake, the grasping just drops, right? Because it's just a mistake. Yeah. I thought I needed to grasp, but I realize I don't, so maybe I will not. And we know what goes, what happens when we go down that road. So yeah, we know very well. That's true. Thus, the, the Buddha approves what he says, but adds that since all conditions, conditioned attributes arise from illusion, and illusions are essentially empty and lack any nature of their own, all attributes are false. 
But since attributes are false, what is not an attribute is real. Thus, you don't have to leave these illusory attributes to seek a Buddha of no attributes somewhere else. Form is emptiness, and emptiness is form. Just stop your discrimination. Just stop discriminating between form and emptiness, between you and others, between anything and anything. Actually, between you and you. Primarily. And Bipola says that this is not an idle exercise in semantics, but it is, is crucial to understanding the nature of what the Buddha acquired as a result of his own practice as a Bodhisattva, as well as the nature of what he teaches and the nature of our own practice and our own body. A number of commentators have therefore suggested that this chapter, chapter 5, make, marks the conclusion of the central teaching of the Sutra and that the remaining chapters simply develop what is stated in this, what is primarily stated in these first five chapters. It's kind of unpack it or maybe drive the point deeper of what those five chapters are telling us. The St. Charles says, Bodhisattvas have three goals in mind, to liberate all beings, to cultivate all practices, and to realize enlightenment. Liberating others has already been explained as the way, of, the way to practice. This section explains how to approach enlightenment. The bodily attributes of the Tathagata make up the body that comes with enlightenment. To recognize this Dharma body is to realize enlightenment. But to think that its nature is real is to miss the mark. Thus he points to the Dharma body to explain the emptiness of enlightenment because we can grasp enlightenment. And then Vasubandha says, from this point on, the rest of the sutra tries to eliminate subsequent doubts. Here, the doubt arises if, the practice, if we practice charity without attachment to dharmas, how do we seek the peerless fruit of enlightenment and practice bestowing wisdom on others? To answer this doubt, the sutra asks, if we can see the Tathagata by means of his perfect attributes. In the Complete Enlightenment Sutra, the Buddha says, keep this thought in mind. This body of mind is a combination of the four elements. It's hair, nails, teeth, skin, flesh, muscles, bone, and marrow belong to earth. It's saliva, tears, pus, blood, snot, uh, froth, phlegm, semen, urine, and feces belong to water. Its warmth belong to fire. And its movement and stillness belong to wind. Take away each of the four elements and this body turns out to be an illusion. Where is it now? So, looking at it this way, who are we? What are we? If not one with all things, what are we? What are we holding on to? It really goes to the heart of it. I mean, this is really the, it's the reason why it's called the Diamond Sutra that cuts through the Luke. We really study it. I have, you know, I've been reading it over and over again, and it actually grows on you. You know, it, 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 it started at the beginning, you know, maybe when you first read it, it's like, okay, I get it. 
But then you read again and again and again, and something in you starts to correspond with it, starts to respond. Okay. Um, on page 105, it says the Buddha wants us to recognize the impermanent owner of this impermanent body, only then can we not be affected by appearances. Say it again. Wants us to recognize the impermanent owner of this impermanent body, and only then can we not be affected by appearances. Yeah. Impermanent means what? Uh, it's not permanent. Not fixed. Right. Right. So there is, impermanent means there is nothing there. Because as soon as I say there's something there, it's no longer that. Right. As soon as I point at something, it's no longer what I'm pointing at. Because split second later, it's something else. Right. Because we can't fix it. Because there's nothing there that, nothing stays the same. Everything is constantly in flux. Since it's in flux, how can I point at something and that thing could be me? Right. Right? I mean, me or something else. The second I point at it and then say something about it, the same is already past the second I point. Yeah. So I'm no longer that. I am not who I think I am, is what is, right? I'm not who I think I am. So then again, where is it now, is he asking, right? What is, who, who are you now? Tignatan says, you are made of non-you elements. Mm-hmm. says, the physical body has form, the Dharma body has no form. The physical body is made up of the four elements and is given birth by our parents. It is perceived by a physical eye. The Dharma body has no form or appearance. It has no characteristics. It cannot be seen by the physical eye. Only the eye of wisdom can see it. <coughs> Ordinary people only see the physical body of the Tathagata. They do not see the Tathagata, the Tathagata's Dharma body. The Dharma body is like the sky. It is like the space to the east, to the west, the south, immeasurable. The Buddha's point is that while we can view the attributes of body as an illusion, if we can see them as no attributes, as not severed from the seamless fabric of reality, we see the Buddha's true body, which necessarily includes the very attributes whose reality was just denied. Thus, the Arhat's denial of reality becomes the Bodhisattva's affirmation. This technique is used repeatedly throughout this sutra to demonstrate through logic what the word emptiness often fails to convey by itself. Because I think you know, the word emptiness, and I talked about yesterday a little bit in the like, you know, Zen uh, seminar we had, the word emptiness is a, it's a very difficult word because the, there's an immediate connotation, and the connotation separates right away. It's empty, it's full, right? That's how we see it. Uh, maybe there's a better way to, to describe that or to point at it in, in a closer way, but that's not what it means. It never is empty of anything. It's just not fixed. 
it's empty of fixed position because it continues because nothing stays the same so it does often fail to convey what it's pointing at right meanwhile Zen Master shortened this logical technique even further by holding up a finger by refusing to speak by striking the disciples or by offering them a cup of tea Because what it does is, you know, those actions, they just stop the mind on its tracks. And when the mind is stopped, there are no separations, there are no gaps. St. John said, when you, when you are practicing understanding me, you will see the Buddha. When you are practicing understanding me, you will see the Buddha. So, I wanted to uh, talk for a few minutes about the Trikaya, the three bodies of the Buddha. Because, of course, it comes up often in our studies. The, the Trikaya, the Dharmakaya, is the body of ultimate reality. The Sambhogakaya is the body of bliss or joy. And the Nimanakaya, the Buddha's conditioned human body of flesh and blood. So, from another translation, Musun, I call that translated the Diamond Sutra, transforming the way we perceive the world. That's how he titled it. He says, the doctrine of Trikaya, literally, of the three bodies of the Buddha, is predominantly associated with the text of the Yogacara school, the third great school of Indian Mahayana Buddhism, after Vajna Paramita and the Madhyamaka schools. He says, the Dhammakaya is the unformed unmediated primordial consciousness unformed unmediated primordial consciousness it is a synonym of, for ultimate reality itself the final development of Buddhahood an abstract resolution of all dualities as Shunyata beyond any conceptualization or designation the Dharmakaya is beyond time and space it appears everywhere at the same time. The Nirmanakaya is the body of the historical Shakyamuni Buddha, visible to ordinary human beings and intended to inspire people to embark on the path of the Dharma. The Nirmanakaya is the proactive aspect or projection of the Dharmakaya in the phenomenal world. So it's how the Dharmakaya manifests or functions in a way, right? In the phenomenal world. It is an act of reimagination of a Buddha in the ordinary world. The Nirmanakaya operates in human time. So this is how, so it operates within a world of differentiation. So it has the ability to see things uniquely, differently, from a perspective of, or from a point of no differentiation. And the Sambhogakaya is the subtle quasi-material body, neither a fully relative nor a fully absolute body through which the Buddha guides highly developed practitioners on the path of Buddha. 
Sambhogakaya is also translated as the communal enjoyment body, which communicates the idea of sharing in the joy of a community, both in causal and effective modalities. It operates in non-human. Does that help? Okay. There is another, I found another uh, way of looking at it, but um, this guy was a professor of British studies at uh, Naropa University, uh, Reginald Ray. He says, the apparent solidity and continuity of existence is the practical helpful monarchia. The perpetual change and transformation of death and birth is the unceasing sambhogakaya. So he's referring to our own existence, right? The perpetual change of death and birth is the unceasing sambhogakaya, and the unbounded openness of emptiness is nothing other than the immutable Dharmakaya. Then he says, Buddhism teaches that within each of us is with the nature, the immaculate, peerless state of enlightenment embodied in a perfected way by the Buddha. What is the Buddha nature? It is nothing other than the three bodies of a fully awakened one. Buddhism affirms, in other words, that the three kayas, in their integral, pure and mature form, are within us at this very moment. Yet, obviously, we cannot experience the three kayas in their full and perfected form. Rather, when they arise as the background of everyday moment of our life, of everyday life. They're there in the background, it's just that we don't experience that. So when they arise, we instantly overlay and obscure them with our habitual distorting tendencies of our ego. They're there, it's just that we cover it up because of our tendencies, or through our tendencies. So it's not something that appears later, it's something that continuously is there. In the same way that you know, when a person realizes, realization doesn't show up from anywhere, and when a person is not realized, it doesn't go anywhere. So the three Buddha bodies are not coming and going. The question is whether or not we realize it. And that's the practice, right? Each of us, based on our particular karmic uh, proclivities, tends to focus on one or another of the three kayas. We try to create from it a solid, secure ground for our samsaric self. For most of us, the monokaya in its solidified form as existence, is the ground we most prefer with birth and death, Sambhogakaya, emptiness, and the Dharmakaya being undesirable or even deeply feared ground. So we are afraid of, we hold on to one form of existence, one way in which the Buddhahood manifests, we hold on to that because we are terrified of the other it is true that there is that form, but, that, but it's also true that that form is formless. But we hold on to the form of the formlessness, because we are terrified of the formless of the form. Yeah? Better? 
Yeah, it's better. You look less perplexed. <laughs> it's bringing up a lot of stuff for me. I'm just trying to make sense of it. Not, not so much what you're saying, because I can understand the words. But the reality of it, you know, it, 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 I think you touched on this. We, we get these tiny, tiny little glimpses of what Buddha looks like. But there, I, you know, you start to recognize all the stuff that's in the way of that, all the time. Mm-hmm. And how you have to move all this stuff out of the way in order to just get a glimpse for a couple seconds. Well, you don't move anything out of the way. Mm. Because you realize that it's not in the way. You realize that what you think is in the way is an illusion. As long as you think it's in the way, it's in the way. Where else is it going to be? Well, it's tr- it, yeah, yes. But I mean, you know, taking it in the context of our everyday lives. You know, there, there, there's so much that we put in the way. You know, whether it's there or not, I agree. It's, you know, what we're trying to experience, what we're trying to awaken to is, you know, what has always been there, what will always be there type of thing. In this very deep background of our everyday existence. Mm-hmm. So that's, you know, I, that, that's what, when I hear these words, this is what comes to me. And, you know, I can't help but think about, you know, the, the state of consciousness, you know, um, and, and how we kind of, we're like little, you know, you know we have pop bubbles, the packing bubbles. <laughs> we're just like a tiny little packing bubble that, you know, that exists for a fraction of a second. Mm-hmm. And we don't see the, the enormity of everything else that exists in order for that little bubble to be popped. We don't see that we are that enormity. We are that magnanimity. We are this. And this is what he's trying to say here. You know, it's not that we have to negate something in order to get somewhere else. Right. We have to see that it's all inclusive mm-hmm. in this form we call myth. But it's more a dropping away process. It's, it's more of the more you become aware or awakened, the more drop, that drops off. The more that, you know, the easier it is to, to glimpse what it is that we're trying to. Yeah, well, it's to develop the willingness, as I said, the, the willingness to let go, the willingness to change, the willingness to realize that we all change. We don't want to change. Think about it. We don't want to change. We, we actually are terrified by change. We are terrified by who we are. We're afraid of what we are, actually. That's what this is saying. I mean, that's the conclusion, right? We're afraid of what we are. Admitting what we are. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I don't like the term being afraid of it. I just think we don't understand it. I just think... And, and maybe, yeah, maybe we fear what we don't understand, right? But well, afraid, of, afraid of the annihilation of that form, afraid of dying. We're afraid this is the... It all, it all boils down to not wanting to be annihilated. Now and ever. Mm-hmm. And the practice telling you, die now. Now. This is why, how do we say, better die now than later. Better die now than later. Right? The hell with it. Just die. And then live the way you're supposed to live.
Are you guys? It's good she's not grasping at it. <laughs> I'm grasping. <laughs> yes. So it has something to do with, I don't know whether what she said, but if you get a glimpse, if I get a glimpse, it's like a whole different state. I don't mean a big mystical experience. I mean just something. Yeah, it expands. What? It expands. Your life, your reality expands. It's like ah, <laughs> <laughs> because it's not a, because it's different. Yeah. But it was something that you said about. I don't know what it was. When it comes, if it comes, it's like grace. It's not like anything I did. It's not like I let go. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's not like I let go. Right. So it, it, it just... It's not like I can do something to stop this grasping. <laughs> Which is what you keep implying, that I could just stop grasping. Yeah. Yes, but you're not... But it's not a question of volition. But it's a question of intention in the other sense of intention, just that you're orienting yourself that way. But it's... It's telling you to stop grasping the grasp. <laughs> no, seriously. Don't hold on to the fact that you have tendency to grasp. Kind of strikes me as those, you know, when you try when you're trying to find your keys, and you get fixated on that, you keep walking past it, mm -hmm. and the entire time they've been hiding in plain sight. Mm -hmm. If you just took a break and kind of just mm -hmm. let it set in, and it's like in, each time you pass through a room, the chances of you seeing it keep decreasing, <laughs> and, and eventually it's like, oh, it, it, was, it was there the whole That's time. That's the roaring laugh of a Buddha. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the hell was I doing? Yeah. <laughs> Right? You're looking in all the wrong places. Yeah. Yeah. I just wanted to kind of go back to what he was expressing. That yeah, I think that too. There's so much in the way. <laughs> but just like this past week I was and, and today it kinda of helped. But what if my just to put in words, my bigger eye needs what is happening now that I consider obstacles to, for me, like, oh, that shouldn't be there. Right? Right, right. But then, just for the first time, I, I contemplate that, which we all say it, but, you know, like, what if I, I'm meant to be here, even though I don't understand it and I don't want to move, I want to move things around to, like what she said, be able to get whatever I need to get, and that needs to move. But what if, yes, that's my small eye, but where my bigger eye knows that no, that doesn't need to move, that needs to be there for whatever, for being, right? But my point is, maybe going to the extremes, but if that's recognizing that that needs to be there, it, for me, stop the fight inside, or that anxiety of like moving things. 
just uh, just even saying it out loud, it had helped lately. Like, what if <laughs> I had that cup needs to be there? Although I don't like the color, but what if that color needs to be there? And something inside of me, I don't know. All of a sudden, just be like, let me trust. You know that that like that it's been extremely hard for me to trust that. Again, obviously, my small eye doesn't want to trust my bigger eye because I know what I'm doing. <laughs> but no, like, what if it, it is meant to be? And again, it seems we all say it all the time, yeah. but for some reason, I'm just like, allowing myself to consider it. <laughs> well, you're allowing for the possibility the that you don't know. Yes. That's what we do. Yeah. We have to allow for the possibility that I don't know. I feel this, this, and that, right? But I, maybe I don't know. Yes. Yeah. I don't know what it is. I don't know why. I don't know if it's supposed to be there or not. I no. Know. And if I don't know, then I'm, I can allow it to be. Yes. Because I don't know that it's not supposed to be this way. Yes. But to say it's not supposed to be this way is to say I know. Yeah. I know best. It's also inviting. What do I know for if I don't know? Yeah, that's it. And it's also inviting that whole of. If I only get rid of this one thing, all my problems will be solved. Yes, and no, you know, you know, on the other side of the country, all of the people causing the problem to go in, and suddenly you find that yes, it's caught up to you. Yeah, it's the same. Yeah, Empire Strikes Back kind of thing. But it's just the one with shorts and tank tops, but in a way, yeah, exactly. Weather problems, but yeah, so it's kind of coming to the conclusion that. It, it, I guess, like getting hung up on appearances. Yeah. In this is is not ideal. To say that the Buddha is reducible to these sets of appearances is to say my problem is reducible yeah. to just that obstacle. So stop looking at that. And fixating start, on yeah, something. Fixating right. on it. Yeah. Right. Fixating on a sense of self yeah. or on appearances. Yeah. On appearance, but you know. How do you see the Buddha is also how do you see the one who's deluded, you know? I mean you see you have attributes for the one who's deluded too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? It's not just the, the one who's awakened. Because I have attributes which I'm holding on to of the one who is not a Buddha. Mm-hmm. And that's how I see a non-Buddha mm-hmm. in the mirror. <laughs> right? So attributes are attributes, right? It's not that they're not, you know, they do appear. Yeah. But they're empty of fixed position. Mm-hmm. Well, they're not characteristics, right? Uh, an appearance is an appearance. It's not. An, uh, it's not the innate fundamental nature. It's just the manifestation of that nature. It's not not innate fundamental nature either. Yeah. So watch out. <laughs> <laughs> we, we want to avoid absolutes, right? You know, we want to, yeah. To open it up, basically. And that's what he's saying. You know, <coughs> watch the grasping nature. So, just to finish this form of the chapter 6, again I'm quoting, he says, In a sense, the more we rest in the Dharmakaya, Shunyata, the more we are called to compassionate engagement with those in distress. Because we do not judge by any standard, right? From there, they are almost. So more judgment. So the more we are called and we respond to to engage with those who are in distress. By the same token, the two form kaya, the Nimana kaya and the Sambhoga kaya, 
imply the Dharmakaya and in fact can only function properly when they are transparent to its emptiness. So we, it functions together. To function well, we have to function as a whole, not as a segment. So within the form, to function from formlessness, or to realize the formlessness in the form, right? And then this is so because only when the energy of the Sambhogakaya and the particularity of the Nirmanakaya are seen as without essence in their helpfulness to others, is their helpfulness to others able to be open, flexible, and completely appropriate to what sentient beings need. And that is assume the shape according to the need. Only then we can assume the shape according to the need. Because the attributes are no attributes. <coughs> because what I think as me is not me. Then you could be anything. Okay, chapter 6. This having been said, the Venerable Subhuti asked the Buddha, Bhagavan, will there be any beings in the future, in the final epoch, in the final period, in the final 500 years of the Dharma ending age, who give birth to the perception of the truth of the words of a sutra such as that one spoken here? In Tikhnatan, I'm going to comment on that or, or quote commentary on that. Tignatan says, the Venerable Subhuti understands deeply what the Buddha has already explained, but he's, he is concerned that those in the future will not, since this, will not, since these teachings appear to contradict common sense. So he's expressing doubts in the path of the Bodhisattva on what the Buddha is saying as something that can survive. It may not be difficult to understand, he says, that the teaching of a Buddha, for a person to understand the teaching of a Buddha while the, while the Buddha is alive, but 500 years later, after the Buddha passed away, will those who read that understand without being exposed to the Buddha himself? So, and what he's talking about, the, the last uh, 500 years, last 500 years, the final period of, uh, of the Dharma. There are a couple of different ways of seeing that. You know, uh, one comment or one school of thought says that it's in about 10,000 years. Another says that uh, we are actually in that final period. So I think in a couple of years or so, the Dharma will end. So in a way, we are in the ending period of the Dharma. Back in, yes. So, we are in the ending period of the Dharma, and here we are reading this sutra. How do we view that? Because this is the question he's asking, right? This is the, the doubt that Subhuti is expressing. Will there be people like us today looking at this Dharma, understanding what it's about, and uh, using it to actually awaken. Are we? 
But that's the question. Right? Is it, is it, do we understand what this sutra is pointing at? The Buddha said, Subhuti, do not ask will there be any beings in the future, in the final epoch, in the final period, in the five, last five, 500 years of the Dharma and the age, who give birth to the perception of the truth of the words of the sutra such as the one spoken here. Surely, Subhuti, in the future, there was a lot of repetition, right? <laughs> there will be fearless bodhisattvas who are capable, virtuous, and wise who give birth to the perception of the truth of the words such as spoken here. Now, you probably see that. Right? So Buddha is asking about people and the Buddha is answering with bodhisattvas. Will there be people who understand that? And the Buddha is saying, there will be fearless bodhisattvas who will understand that. Well, what is he saying? That there are many who see that as Jewish today. Many. More so than people who actually look at it and say, well, there is something here that I need to delve into. So, a fearless Bodhisattva is, first of all, the one who doubts what we trust. Right? To doubt what we tend to trust and to begin to trust what we tend to do. That's the beginning of the path. To bring, I don't know, or maybe I don't know, to I know everything. I know how people are. I know they cannot be trusted. I know blah, blah, blah. How do you know? Because I experienced. Yeah, but so what? Can you measure the space to the east? The west, the south, no. So how can we be so sure? We reduce ourselves to not to to we reduce our capabilities, our potential to a tiny fragment. And we feel like a tiny fragment. Disconnected. And Paul says in the previous chapters, Buddha does not see the real Buddha, only emptiness. Here, he does not understand the nature of the real Sangha either. Subhuti, because that's what it takes, right, to understand what, or to even uh, incline to want to go deeper into such a sutra, right? It takes a practice, it takes a Sangha, it takes what we do to understand that there is something here. Subhuti wonders how anyone in the future can fathom the teaching he himself does not fully understand, especially since being in the beings in the future will not have the advantage of the Buddha's example and personal instruction. But the Buddha rebukes Subhuti and says that there will surely be beings in the future who believe this or will trust this teaching, probably better word to translate. They are called bodhisattvas. So Buddha underestimates the power of the bodhisattvas resolve rightly made. There will indeed be those who whose faculties and abilities are complete, whose moral character is pure, 
and whose understanding is profound. For once they resolve to liberate all beings, there will be no place or age where bodhisattvas do not appear. Time and space are not, are not constrained for the bodhisattva's body of Mary. In fact, such bodhisattvas will necessarily include Subhuti and anyone else who embarks on the bodhisattva path. Do you agree? Yes. From experience, not from reading. Do, do we agree? As practitioners. Is this why Dharma transmission becomes important in a way, I guess, of who's receiving it? Because if the question is a matter of authenticity of sorts, of does the message get diluted every year that passes, as opposed to getting it directly from yeah. the source? But it's also highlighting that that's a kind of a false question in the sense of we're always at the source, the source is here. And it's not Buddha, but it's also Buddha in a way. It, 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 but it leads us to practice. Yeah. But what you're saying, Dharma transmission, yes, but, Dharma, but we have inherited this. Mm-hmm. We, each of us, every practitioner, day one practitioner, we have inherited this. Mm-hmm. How do we uphold it? How do we practice it? So the responsibility is not just on the one who has uh, got Dharma transmission. Yeah. So right. We have to be very clear about that, right? It's not somebody, somebody will show the development while I just kind of tag along. Mm-hmm. That's not the right way to practice. The fact that there is a teacher in the Sangha doesn't mean that the teacher carries the load of practice alone. Right? You know, we all have to Teacher can be a teacher if he doesn't have somebody to teach. Students can be students if we don't have someone to yes, learn. We hold each other up. That is very true. Right. Teacher is a student. I do. When I read that, I was, I, like it, the Dharma talking about form and formless with the little understanding I have, but it will never. It's not a worry I have that it will ever vanish because it will always remain. It's indestructible. So, yeah, like, and, and yes, it may be expressed in different ways. Maybe we won't have a Dharma Sutra. Maybe, I don't know, from years from now, it will be your phone. <laughs> or whatever it is that it may be, but it will find a way to manifest. In, according to, because if we look at us now, when we'll say thousands of years ago, this may now seem like Dharma in the sense of the structure of how Dharma is given or how you learn Dharma or how you practice it changes according to time and space but it never changes I, I don't know I feel like no, it's what you're saying is the Upaya changes yeah or like I was warning here why and, and Buddhism like obviously <laughs> <laughs> there's not a question about like you being Catholic you're raised Catholic and, and that's about it and right. there's not even an asking like you want to be something else and yet I was like I remember I was a kid and I was like there has to be something else that working and think it was something I wonder I had in my mind and my family thought it was a little weird because of that <laughs> but then when I went to Catholic school they talk about Jesus Christ, I think, and then people will be like, oh, Jesus Christ, and I used to think of Jesus Christ as a cool guy. 
But it keeps it alive. It keeps it going. It changes. Well, it's not changing, right? Yeah. But you know, obviously, in that way, right? But it has to change, right? So to, to you know to inquire about what made Jesus so cool, right? So, <laughs> right, in a way, that's I what it is. Because right? then you actually look at it in a deeper way, and you know, I want to know that. I want to know the path. That leads to coolness. Yeah. <laughs> right on. <laughs> All right. That's how we need to uh put yeah. <laughs> 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 a picture of Buddha with sunglasses on membership. Buddha's not a moment in space and time. Um, so there's something a little strange about the question that there's many Buddhas before this Buddha. Mm-hmm. But there could be many Buddhas after this Buddha, and and Buddha doesn't create something that wasn't already there, which I think is similar to what you're saying that the, whatever Buddha's realizations were were not the Buddha's fault or the Buddha's um, creation. So that whatever the reality is isn't uh, dependent upon the Buddha, um, and could I mean we'd all have access to it. That's our nature, uh, and somewhat the kind of source that you're describing would be built in to everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So, which right. so, so to the Bodhisattva statement, that is, is, he's kind of answering his question with answering it without answering it by, instead of saying people, he's says Bodhisattvas. Because that's what he takes. Yeah. Right? It's not just, you know, being bold. It does take <laughs> that attitude, right? It, it takes, because, you know, you know we, we don't grow up in, in uh, environments that help us seek that, right? Or practice. In fact, we, we, we grow up in an environment that tells us to do something else, to negate such teachings. So, that, so, so the question is, is a good question. Right? Will there be? Well, here, here we are. But as Bodhisattvas. So I just think it's very interesting, right? Because he's asking about people and he's answering with Bodhisattvas. Well, people. It's not that he's, you know, saying something else, but he's saying something about practice. Not by chance. So indeed, Subhuti, such fearless bodhisattvas will have honored 
not just one Buddha. They will have planted auspicious roots before not just one Buddha. Surely, Subhuti, such fearless Bodhisattvas will have honored countless hundreds and thousands of Buddhas, and they will have planted auspicious roots before countless hundreds and thousands of Buddhas. In, in the words of the sutra, such as that one spoken here, they are sure to gain perfect charity of mind. Yeah? We clear on that? And before says, the Bhagavan those who teach the Dharma, Bodhisattvas eliminate inauspicious roots and add to their auspicious roots. The roots determine the nature and quality of the fruit. <coughs> roots include our abilities and habits of behavior, speech, and thought. Auspicious roots give birth to belief that and understanding. Inauspicious roots give birth to disbelief and delusion. Thus, to believe and understand such a profound teaching as this, beings cannot plant just any seeds, but a seed that puts forth the deepest of roots. And only bodhisattvas are capable of planting and cultivating such a seed. Right? That's why it's about practice. It's not an AC never is about that, but it is about practice. And then the Buddha says, the Tathagata knows them, Subhuti, by means of his Buddha knowledge. And the Tathagata sees them, Subhuti, by means of his Buddha vision. So, what does that mean? What is he saying here? What is he seeing? Or is he seeing into the future? We talked about a little bit. Um, so, all space and time is existing in this moment, so he's actually kind of seeing what's existing. He can tell already that there are things in the future or in the past because it's not different from this moment right now. Right, so to see into the future is to see into this. And to see into the past is to see into this. Right? And to recognize, you know, bodhicitta, right? To recognize bodhicitta is timeless. Then what is the question about later? Right? We're not awakening to a tradition that has to be preserved. We're awakening into awakening. And there's a potential, what is it that needs to be preserved? So yes, of course, you know, we maintain the tradition to allow or, or to create the, the, the conditions for people to awaken to their own potential. So it is important to understand what it is, why we're doing what we're doing. The Tathagata is aware of them, Subhuti, for they, are, for they all produce and receive a measureless infinite body of merit. And how so? Because Subhuti, these fearless bodhisattvas do not create a perception of a self, nor do they create a perception of a being, a life, or a soul. We're going back to this. Right? Which really means to see into the empty nature of all things. And the, the empty nature of all things is timeless. 
It's not an opinion. Everything, you know, practice or the tradition is not come follow us, you know, we know what we're doing. There's, we don't say that. We say, here's a cushion, sit down, take a look. Right? Maybe we'll give you tea, that's it. <laughs> but then the rest is on you. Sit down, take a look. Be a fearless bodhisattva. Be willing to look at what hurts. So that means. No subuti do those fearless bodhisattvas create a perception of a dharma, much less a perception of don't know dharma. And he's saying it because he knows where subuti is coming from. Subuti, they do not create a perception, no more perception. Why not? Because Subuti, if these fearless bodhisattvas created a perception of a dharma, they would be attached to a self, a being, a life, or a soul. <coughs> Likewise, if they created a perception of no dharma, they would be attached to a self, a being, a life, or a soul. And why not? Because surely Subuti, fearless bodhisattvas do not cling to a dharma, much less to no dharma. This is the meaning behind the Tathagata saying, a Dharma teaching is like a raft. If you should let go of Dharmas, how much more so no Dharmas? So Dharma teaching is like a raft. Do you want to say something about that? What's that raft about? You know. Say it. Share it. Found the Dharma. It's, it's a vehicle, it's a means, it's not the thing itself. What do you do with a raft when you cross the river? You give it to someone else to go past. Right, you don't put it on your head and walk around. No. <laughs> yes. It's a skillful way to realize. It's a structure, so you're not just floundering around and unfocused. Yes, exactly like I'm doing right now. <laughs> <laughs> Stop doing that. Okay. says, those of us on the path of Buddhist practice, because we have been practicing looking deeply, might have fewer erroneous views and our perceptions might be closer to being complete and true. But they're all still perceptions. Right? So he's saying, take a look. Because you can develop new perceptions, right? And then the Buddha said, well, why not, Suddhi? Because if these fearless bodhisattvas created the perception of the Dharma, they would be attached to the self of being alive and so Likewise, if they created the perception of no Dharma, they will be attached to a being alive, a self and a soul. I'm just going to scroll down. So Bipoda says, even though we cannot find anything real, the perception that something is real has its use. This is how we live in the world, right? This is how we function. The perception that something is not real also has its use. This is how we enter the stream of holy living. But the absence of dharmas makes further progress impossible. Yeah, we still need the dharmas to help us and others reach the other shore. Thus, we offer our self-existence and receive in exchange a body of merit. But even a body of merit is but a lamp 
They gather up historical space. And then there's another quote here about the other shore. Fushi says, if you drown in the middle of the river, what good is it, what good is it to talk about either shore? If you cling to existence or non-existence, you are mired in the mud of the mind. Sometimes those short quotes just put it on the head, right? It's just right there. If you drown in the middle of the river, what good is it to talk about this short or the other So what is drowning in the middle of the river? The, of what? Not understanding. Or understanding. Not understanding or understanding. What is the other show? Are the grasses greener? You have to go find out. But what is the other show? Where is the other show? Here. Yeah. Doesn't feel that way. <laughs> right? Well, you know, if you approach it from the gate of not knowing, right? If you just take things as they come and not try to overlay how things should be on top of things, then where else is there, right? So why do we speak of the other show? Or why do we speak of a raft that takes us from one show to the other? We create that the gap. To what? We create a gap. So what's the purpose of the raft? To shorten their gap. To shrink the gap. Right? It's it, the image of a raft. Uh, actually can can create a perception, a solid sense of here and there. Right? The image of something that can transfer, save me. Mm -hmm. Something that can save me. Something that I can hold on to. Mm -hmm. I, I can hold on to the Dharma as a raft that transports me to the other shore. But then that's why he's saying what he's saying, right? Claim to claim not to Dharma, nor to no Dharma. So I'm thinking you want to get to the other shore. Um, sometimes you think that on the other side things are going to be different or better, right? So you're using your Dharma. You think you're going to get to the other shore. You're going to get to a better understanding. It's like, I guess it's like sometimes like when you, when you travel, mm -hmm. you're, um, when you go on vacation, you, you're thinking, you're dreaming about how wonderful it's going to be over there. Once you're there for a certain amount of time, you start yearning to come back home, right? Realizing that the happiness is just a state of mind. It's just a little break sometimes from a routine. Or the monotonous. And then you know what to expect when you come back home, so you're really not finding it anywhere. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so you're never actually satisfied. Right? 
you're always searching for something different, something better than what your reality actually is. So what's your raft? For you, what's, what's the raft? Can you say that again, Nico? Because you thought I should have kept quiet. She's to answer a question. Trying to answer the question. I was like, oh, what's, what's my plan? Just, I uh, guess, this trying understand and just trust that, you know, whatever it is that I'm searching is here. I just have to just uh, sit still. So when you stop, and we stop on a regular basis, right? We stop this, we stop searching on a regular basis. We, we sit down. We stop moving. Right. We don't go anywhere. We sit down. And we work on appreciating this. Right? We work on learning to appreciate this as is as is, on a daily basis, sit down, go nowhere, take a look. So we do. Yes. It's a good raft. Direct raft. Non-stop, right? So I'm going to finish, we're going to uh, end this chapter, I'm going to finish with uh, another quote from uh, Tim Lee. He says, the dharmas the Buddha wants us to let go of all the dharma of self, the dharma of, of dharma, and the dharma of emptiness. And this actually concludes, in a way, everything that happened up to this point, right? Up to what, you know, what the, the sutra is teaching up to this point. Actually, the entire sutra. The Buddha first teaches people that the self is empty to keep them from clinging to the self. He then teaches them that dharmas are empty to keep them from clinging to dharmas. Finally, he teaches them that emptiness is empty to keep them from clinging to emptiness. Here, however, the word Dharma refers not to the perception of Dharma, but to the teachings of the Buddha. While no Dharma refers not to the absence of such perception, but to such worldly matters as wealth and fame. So this is where the usefulness of it, right? So to let, it, to let go of something doesn't mean to not use it as a raft or as a way to open our understanding. Doesn't mean the hell with it, right? And then, yeah, get rid of all those sutras. It means use it well as a raft, right? So, any last before we finish this, any last thoughts, comments? Are you afraid to ask a question? Because letting go of Dharma, maybe I'm trying to get it in mind, but we use the Dharma to close a gap. Yeah. Right? Once the gap is closed, Dharma becomes no dharma, not because we let go of the actual dharma, like stop practicing the dharma, yeah. just because now that there's no doubt, the dharma becomes just embodied. part of nature. It yeah, like it's, it's not something that we talk about. Yes. That's letting go of the dharma. Yes. Now if I keep saying once I realize things, I keep holding the dharma, then I use it for thing or just 
now it's like seeing the Buddha if you see a Buddha. Like if I'm saying now a Buddha when I like it, it means obviously still a gap. Right. But I thought so. Never so. forget. Paul Sensei actually does one point of advice he gave. He said, learn and forget, learn and forget, let the techniques become part of your beings. Your being. So don't hold on to what you learn. Forget about the techniques. Don't go home and analyze. We did this, we did that, this, and that. No, let it go. It's a, it's a process of embodiment. And, and intellectualizing, you can get in the way. It's the same with the, the practice. You practice again and again and again and again. You allow the practice to do what it needs to do. But if you try to create something of it, it becomes a perception of it. Right? So you're not embodying. It's same with yoga, same with anything, right? It's the same thing. You don't analyze. What? Okay. Thank you. <laughs>